You're listening to Not The Stock Response, an investment podcast like no other. Perhaps for good reason. And to keep the lawyers happy, this is not formal financial advice. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Not The Stock Response. It's relentless. Uh, On the pod today, a battle for the ages, uh, pensions versus property. In the red corner, uh, Lathan Co. heavyweight Alistair Fullerton. Hello. And uh, his opposite number today, uh, an old schoolmate of his actually, Sam McArdle from Project London. Hello. So Sam, property very much your uh, neck of the woods. Do you want to start by, um, well, just a little bit about your background and what Project London do? Yeah, thanks Rupert. Um, So we are a buying agency, acquisitions agent, Uh, much like Alistair and Lathan Co. uh, We advise on property investments. So residential property in prime central London is our commodity, unlike financial markets. Uh, Essentially, the uh, principles are the same. So we will take a brief, we'll go into the market, and we'll try and make the best investment possible for for our clients, whether that be a a buy-to-let or if it's a second home, uh, primary residence, we will make sure that we essentially find the right property and negotiate the best terms and pay pay the lowest amount possible. So I've got a question. May as well get straight into it. Go on. Let's say you had a property worth £1.5 million and you had £400,000 in a bank account and you decided that with Lathan Co. you'd made all the investments you could with ISAs and pensions, junior ISAs, all the different types of investments you can make through Lathan Co. and you still had an appetite for property as an asset class. With that £400,000, would you be thinking for your clients, go and find a buy-to-let property as a standalone investment to try and generate an income? Or would you say, I've got £400,000 you're going to spend more time in your property these days because you're working two days a week at home, whereas it would have been two days a week for the weekend. Would you be saying, go and buy a buy-to-let, or would you be saying, pour £400,000 into your property so you can enjoy your residential home anymore? Strategy is a big thing, and it comes down to what you want out of the investment. Is it rental yield? Is it capital appreciation? Are you a developer looking to add short-term value? Uh, If you are rental yield, and that's your key focus... Um, capital appreciation probably isn't something that we focus on. We're looking for a property that we can get into the market quite cheaply, but with a high rental yield. So that could be a, a flat on a main road. It could be an ex-council flat. It could be uh, something uh, on a, a third floor walk-up without a lift. It could be a basement flat. Something that we can buy quite cheaply, but could rent rent uh, quickly and quite profitably. Capital appreciation is obviously uh, something that's probably a little bit more of a long-term long-term play. Uh, buying best in class. Um, if you need to sell or, or rent that asset at, at any point in any market, then we need to be able to make sure that you can do that. Uh, obviously, everything that overarchs the investment is, are we buying, the, buying at the right price? And that comes down to opportunity and enough research. Uh, or I think the third and final one is, is development, as I touched on. So if you if you have enough time on your hands and the willingness and the eagerness, then this could be quite a good strategy. And, and that's buying something that has the opportunity built built into it. Is the is there profit somewhere in this property? I'm not really buying it to hold and wait for the market to to come with me. I'm looking to add value specifically. So um, forcing that uplift. Exactly. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to your ambitions and your appetite and what, you, what you're looking to get from that £400,000. Uh, is it a rental yield? Uh, is it uh, capital appreciation? 
if it's none of those things, then maybe it is extend and improve and renovate your own primary residence. Do you need that extra loft room for a, for a study? Is it a side extension to get a bigger kitchen? Is it a garden annex for when the grandparents come to stay? So I think it really comes down to to individual appetite. One thing that we're always very keen at, at Project London is to make sure that nobody overcapitalizes their asset. Nobody wants the best house on the worst road. Fine. So I guess that takes care of looking at the primary residence and possible improvements there. If you were to look at a buy-to-let property, what are the pitfalls, do you think, at the moment, given the current market? Because the government's clearly tried to cool down the buy-to-let market, but what have you seen on the ground amongst your clients? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And the honest answer is uh, it's very hard to, to build a business case for um, for a buy-to-let property at the moment, especially uh, with what's gone on in the last year or so. Prices have, have plateaued, so that's definitely a consideration. I think uh, the days of, of buying a property and expecting double-digit growth are, are over, certainly for the short to medium term. There's a lot more taxation surrounding a buy-to-let investment, certainly if you're buying it uh, in an individual name. There's a 3% extra stamp duty. Um, there's removal of the 10% wear and tear. Uh, you now can't offset your mortgage. So there's a lot to think about. On top of that, you've got uh, extra capital gains tax these days. So the capital gains tax rates specifically for investment properties, 28% and 18% rather than the 20% and 10% that you've got with other asset classes. You've got the income tax that you've got to pay on the income you receive from the rent. And you've got stamp duty tax, even without the additional 3% is a tax that you've got to consider when paying for a property. So all of these things combined, I think you're right, make a one-off or one, two or three stable buy-to-let properties less and less attractive, which is the original intention of the government from increasing these taxes to cool the housing market and help people get on board. Well, interestingly, on top of that, um, they've actually uh, made it more favourable to buy uh, in a limited company. So certain tax advantages as multiple dwelling, stamp duty relief, you can obviously run it more as a business, so you can offset your mortgage against your, your interest. Uh, you are finding a lot of individuals, or I am finding a lot of individuals are not purchasing properties in their own name and paying the, paying the 10 15% stamp duty uh, and managing it themselves. They're actually clubbing together and forming a bit of a fund. So if you buy five properties in a linked transaction, you actually only pay, I think it's between 5 and 7% rather than the 15%. So you are finding clubs of investors coming together and uh, investing in a, in a building of multiple flats. And one other thing we've not talked about is the shift in interest rates that we've seen over the last 12 or so months, uh, albeit on the basis of inflation. But yeah, we've been living in an environment of historic low interest rates in the aftermath of the financial crisis. I think they got down to half a percent or so, didn't they, before COVID? And yeah, with inflation being where it's been over the last 12 months, we've seen them spike, particularly after Quasi Quarteng's mini-budget. It sent the mortgage market into turmoil. Um, even though that that's now calmed down, a lot of products have come back on the market. Interest rates are forecast to spike at anywhere from maybe late fours to 5%. This year, when mortgage rates then tend to hover a couple of percent above that, so that sort of late sixes, early seven percents for mortgage rates. But looking forward on, albeit market predictions, you're looking at 2025, 2026, 2027. The market is still predicting that central bank rates will be at the sort of three percent 
sort of range, two and a half to three and a half percent, which means again you're looking at mortgage rates standard at four and a half to five and a half percent. So all of that together makes you stop and think about well, how will that affect housing prices on the whole? And I guess that's a question for you, Sam. Yeah, I mean, I think that's inevitable, isn't it? And people are coming to the end of fixed term deals and having to renegotiate new mortgage mortgage deals, and obviously they're considerably more than they were. Uh, the one thing that you do have to remember is that uh, since the crash, uh, investors have been and purchases have been stress tested at much higher rates than they've secured previously on their mortgages. So actually, there should be a little bit of that uh, headroom factored in. So I don't think you're going to see as much softening in the market as perhaps you might think. Um, people should be able to to at least swallow some of this increase. Uh, already, we're seeing some of the mortgage products on the market coming down slightly. So yeah, I think what you will see more than anything is a bit of a Mexican standoff, and uh, that will always happens uh, when there's a bit of a, uh, a tide change in the market. Sellers aren't quite willing to accept that the house is worth less than it was last week, and buyers perhaps aren't willing to pay what what they perceive to be a, it, the worth of it last week. So yeah, I think there might be a bit of a, a Mexican standoff. There'll be a sticky period. And who tends to win in a Mexican standoff? Out of curiosity. Good question. Uh, I think the last Mexican standoff that I experienced or significant Mexican standoff was 2014, 2015 when stamp duty increased. And although they thought it might cool the market in terms of making it more expensive for buyers to buy, what actually happened is buyers weren't prepared to pay the extra increase and sellers actually had to reevaluate their expectations and come down and meet the market. So actually, in that scenario, it was the sellers. So look, we've we've sort of pitched this as you know pensions versus property. I think obviously the reality is for, for most of your clients, you're gonna you're gonna want to be exposed to a bit of both. How do you how do you make them work to, together sensibly? Our version of good financial planning works best when you look at the whole financial plan through a bird's eye lens and try and intertwine different strands together to complement each other and what I mean in less abstract terms taking property versus pensions is a really good example um, they're too big debts if you think of it like that that people need to save towards throughout a typical financial plan and it's often a case of one or the other often property wins in the short term because it's tangible it's got an immediate enjoyment factor whereas pensions is something that's off in the future and can often be deferred to a later date but one of the questions we get asked quite a lot actually is people want big mortgages to have a big property because particularly primary residence because it's tax-free you can enjoy it and as Sam was saying with spending more time at home doing those home improvements if you're working from home two days a week then it's got that extra enjoyment factor in our world that comes at a cost and so people now need bigger mortgages and one of the ways that people control their monthly mortgage payments is to extend the term because people are living longer. Nowadays, you can easily extend the mortgage term to sort of 65, 70 or so. And that needs to be thought about when thinking about when people want to work because what we see is people still want to work until the more traditional sorts of ages of anywhere from 55 to 65 on average. And so what we sometimes find is that there'll be in a mortgage term that might run to 65, but someone's intentions are to retire at 60. And so there's a five-year tail there that needs some thought. And that's really where you can intertwine pensions in the overall financial plan because 
they're tax-free. So any money within a pension is gross. It's not seen any income tax. And most people know that you can access 25% that of that pension tax-free as a lump sum anytime, typically from 55 or 57, dependent on your date of birth. But that's a, probably the only legal way where you can access a big lump sum of capital without having paid any tax on it. So for people with big mortgages, residential properties, and their intention is to stay in those properties, they can, if they've got sight on both their retirement plan and their mortgage together, they can sort of say, well, I want to retire at 60. I'm going to build some money up in my pension tax-free with the view to using some of that tax-free cash to close off the end of the mortgage that allows me to retire at the age of 60, completely free of liability, and I've paid the last five years off with gross money that's never seen any income tax. Excellent. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for, Chance. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the pod. Over to you, Bernard. There I was, digging his hole, all in the ground, so big and sort of round it was, and there was I, digging it deep, it was flat.